Chapter 16 of The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners by Agnes G. Byrne. Chapter 16 Dew, Mist, and Fog. On a fine autumn day, the sun beats down for hours, warming the earth and the atmosphere, and the warmed air drinks steadily at every damp surface within reach, till by evening it is well filled with moisture. Then the sun sets, and there are no sheltering clouds to hold in or reflect back the heat of the ground. It pours out fast into space, despite all that the soft veil of floating vapor in the air can do. As the ground cools, it helps to cool the layer. Footnote. When I speak of a layer of air, I do not mean to imply separate layers in the atmosphere, like rows of bricks or sheets of cardboard laid one over another. Air has no such divisions in its make, but any substance may be pictured as divided into possible sections, and, in speaking of the air, it is convenient to imagine successive layers. End of footnote. Layer of air next above it. The touch of cold acts as a squeeze, and immediately drops of water are pressed out, minute floating drops borne up by the air because they are so small and light. Thus an evening mist is formed. Light as the floating drops of a mist are, it is questionable whether even they would be supported by absolutely motionless air, since they are not actually lighter than air. But motionless air is a thing almost unknown. On the stillest day imaginable the air still moves. We often have such mists towards night, after sundown, more especially when the ground is low and damp, where therefore the air has been well soaked. Mists and fogs are much alike, being both neither more nor less than ground clouds. A mist is commonly distinguished from a fog as being made of rather larger drops, therefore feeling more wet. Mists are often seen in the evening or early morning, lying over rivers, sometimes most sharply divided in their outlines, scarcely reaching beyond either bank, but piled up within like a pack of cotton wool. Water will not part quickly with its heat like the solid ground, and long after the earth and air have cooled down, the river water keeps moderately warm. Being warm, it continues to part with a good deal of vapor, more than the chilled air is able to take in. So then, a little bank of mist or fog is formed, all along the course of the stream, more or less dense according to the warmth of the water and the coldness of the air. The river keeps offering water to the air, and the air keeps refusing to drink because it is not thirsty. Between the two, the rejected vapor turns into a cloud, and hovers in a waiting attitude till air and water shall come to a definite conclusion. This patience is generally rewarded after sunrise, by the warmed atmosphere drinking up the fog with eagerness. Sea fogs are brought about in much the same manner as meadow mists. The air which lies over the sea, having a free water surface to feed on, gets well filled with vapor. Then a cold breeze from some new quarter blows into the warm air, chilling it, 
and at once the hidden supply of vapor becomes too great. A wet mist or fog is quickly developed, thickening the atmosphere and blotting out the horizon. The perils of such a fog are sharply felt by those at sea, and were sharply evidenced lately by a collision between the Ostend and Dover mailboats in mid-channel. Suddenly and without warning, the passengers of the lesser boat saw a great steamer burst through the gloom close at hand, bearing down upon them at full speed. There was no time to get out of the way, no time to evade the peril, and the worst that any man expected was not worse than the reality. For the heavier vessel struck the other full amidships, and cut clean through her as with a knife, so that the two halves of the stricken vessel fell away from the bows of her assailant, as a divided bank of snow before the snowplough. Strange to say, one of the severed halves floated for hours after the collision. Sea fogs are often swept by a wind a short distance inland, but over the dry ground they soon die away. London fogs, too, spring into being after much the same method. Two currents of air meet and mingle, one warm and moist, the other cold. If the cold current is dry enough to receive all the superfluous moisture of the warm current, no marked effect is seen. At the most only a slight haze is formed, rapidly to be dissolved. But if, as is often the case, the cold air already has its full complement of moisture, then, when by contact it cools the warm damp air, a fog must be the result. The water of the Thames there is often warmer than the air above it, and the same effect is produced as elsewhere, by the sudden cooling of the ground after sunset. In town, however, an additional and very unpleasant element is found, from which country and ocean are free. The air of London is always more or less full, of countless floating black specks, minute portions of carbon, droppings from the smoke, which thousands of chimneys are ever pouring into the atmosphere. Innumerable water drops, squeezed out of the cooling air, form around, or cling to these tiny specks, and they lend to the fog its peculiarly thick and yellow or black look. Once let a fresh breeze sweep over the city, bringing fresh supplies of unsaturated air, able to hold more moisture, and the fog quickly vanishes. It is sucked up drop by drop into the interstices of the atmosphere. But if no such breeze comes, and the air remains at the same temperature, the fog may linger long, growing probably worse and worse, as more smoke is weighed down by the heavy damp air, to supply fresh carbon centers for new little drops. Sometimes an unhappy variety for the Londoner occurs, in the shape of a fog overhead, not resting on the ground, but most effectually cutting off the sun's rays. It is a little startling for a country cousin, running up to town for a few hours, out of a clear atmosphere, to find the mighty city plunged at midday into Egyptian darkness. This was my own experience one April morning of the current year. To reach the city proved not difficult, though the outskirts looked murky, but during a two-hours business interview the air grew darker and yet more dark. Gas had to be resorted to, and by one o'clock it was, to all intents and purposes, absolute midnight. 
no fog worth mentioning was in the streets and the lamps gave out their light well but a dense pole overhead shut away all daylight it was as easy no doubt to go about as in any gas-lighted winter night only it was not exactly what one expected on an april day and there was an unpleasant consciousness that the overhanging pall of fog might at any moment descend to the level of the pavement putting an end to traffic it seems not at all improbable that even with country and sea fogs the floating drops of water always form around light specks of solid substance borne up in the air too small and light to be perceived some maintain that no fog no mist no cloud can ever be condensed out of the vapour in the air without the help of these minute particles for the water drops to cling to if so the floating dust of the air has a great and important part to play in the vast water circulation of earth it is only in large cities however that these specks are so considerable in size and number as visibly to thicken the fog and to endow it with colour as london waxes yearly bigger as chimneys grow yearly more multitudinous as fogs become yearly more dense and overpowering the future of the city has a serious look no doubt however when things have reached such a pitch of misery that human nature can endure it no longer englishmen will at length put their heads together and will devise some method for burning instead of breathing their smoke one might well ask why wait so long but the average londoner is a much enduring individual there is another kind of evening condensation of moisture often seen and none the less singular because common this is the dropping of dew dewdrops have something about them very pretty and poetical they arrive so softly without stir not pattering like rain or clattering like hail or accompanied by rough winds dew comes on warm and still nights creeping gently into existence under cover of the dusk and fading quietly out of existence under the early sunshine dew does not fall from clouds overhead it is commonly formed only when no clouds are there clouds act as a blanket holding in the warmth of the earth reflecting that warmth to the ground and for dew the quick cooling of earth is needful it comes into being much after the same fashion as a meadow mist sometimes the two are found together dew dropping out of the lower layers of air close to the ground and mist being formed out of the next layers of air above properly speaking dew is hardly dropped since that would imply the falling of the drops for at least a little distance and it appears that they do not fall the moisture is rather placed or deposited by the air on any surface ready to receive it much in the same fashion that moisture is deposited upon the window of a room or a railway carriage when the air within is warmer than the air without the sun having set the ground cools fast if there are no clouds the air also lying on the earth is quickly lowered in temperature on a still evening when it does not move on it reaches presently a stage called dew point by this is meant that no dew has yet been formed but that the air can endure no further cooling if it is to hold still all the vapour it now contains 
it is in fact completely saturated if the cooling continues the next step is the appearance of dew drops of water larger and smaller are squeezed out of the air and cling to grass blades leaves twigs spiders webs and aught else in their way the dewdrops are by no means equally distributed over the ground they favor most those substances which part with heat most readily which therefore grow cold most quickly grass and plants lose heat much faster than paving stones or the road so dew is to be seen closing grass and leaves with shining drops while pavement and road are still dry sometimes the dew point is down below the freezing point then the air instead of depositing drops of water dresses fields and hedges perhaps even the whole landscape in a coat of white hoar-frost hoar-frost is not as many suppose dew first dropped as water and then frozen it is deposited at once in the frozen and solid form like dew it clings most readily to those objects which part most quickly with their warmth hoar-frost is often seen on lawn and bushes when the gravel walk is free from it generally the coating is slight but sometimes it may be seen so thick as to look like a fall of snow on the shutters of the observatory at the top of the Puy de dome it was on one occasion actually three feet thick in tropical countries the amount of dew formed is greater than anything we ever see in temperate climates travelers have found it possible by pouring the dew from one large leaf into another to obtain water enough for washing their hands much of this abundant moisture sinks into the earth and feeds the thirsty roots of plants when once the tropical sun rises all the dew which has not soaked downward vanishes into the atmosphere like a dream in certain american forests dew is sometimes formed at the level of the treetops the abundance of it is extraordinary owing to the quantity of vapor in the air and the rapid changes of temperature it is said that an actual shower of dew like a shower of rain is occasionally felt below this no doubt results from the running together of the drops when formed as moisture deposited on a window will run together and flow downward the slow heating and cooling of water has been alluded to in this chapter and it will be repeatedly spoken of again in connection with winds climate and weather that peculiar characteristic of water which is known as its great specific heat in other words the fact that water requires more heat to raise it to a certain temperature than perhaps any other known substance has widespread results the touch of an overruling and all-wise providence may be seen here if water could be warmed and cooled with the ease and rapidity of other substances the climates of many parts of earth would be in consequence so changed that lands now more or less densely inhabited would become almost uninhabitable End of chapter sixteen